Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. We had some technical difficulties with our first Instagram live session. I wasn't able to save the file at the time due to poor internet connection. However, I have managed to salvage the audio. Here it is for you. I hope you enjoy the questions asked by everyone. Please keep asking your questions as we are problem solving and hope to run much more smoothly uh, next week at 2pm on Friday. Hope to see you there. How can I best use this time to utilise um, this time well to maximise fertility outcomes? So, um, look, basically, I think there's lots of ways to answer this question. One is um, that if you haven't yet started on getting ready in terms of seeking help, um, this is a great time to get started to reach out to your doctor, to a fertility specialist and seek help for the first time because in this time uh, we can really still get to the bottom of what's going on if you've had trouble conceiving. We can find out answers. Uh, we can make a plan and move forward and um, we can still do a lot of diagnostic tests and investigations. Uh, also, when it comes to the point of getting... Um, getting ready for fertility treatments it does take quite a time it's um you know it takes time in speci specifically in victoria to have kind of ticked all the boxes that you need to tick from a bureaucratic perspective we still at this time have things like police checks and child protection checks in place uh, for things that utilize a laboratory so things like ivf and iui and there is still mandatory counselling in Victoria before undertaking treatments that involve a laboratory. Actually, treatments that don't involve a laboratory, we can probably get on with fairly quickly in some cases, with the exception of surgical treatments, which are on hold for now. So um, that is one way that we can kind of like find the vector of your own pathway and kind of start the process of, of problem solving and moving forward. We also know that optimising your natural health and general health is the best thing you can do to try and improve fertility. So, for example, if you're a smoker, stop smoking. If you're a guy, it takes three months for that effect of smoking to leave uh, the sperm and for the sperm to be at its best. Things like ensuring you have a great diet, that you have um, lots of fresh fruit and veg and lots of antioxidants in your diet, cutting out toxins... Um, making sure you have lots of exercise, which boosts endorphins and also improve our metabolism by building muscle, which is the best tissue to burn sugar at rest. Um, you know, we can concentrate on ourselves. One of the upsides to having more 
spare time, I suppose, for a lot of people is that we can, you know, look after ourselves, have sleep, make sure we get enough rest, make sure that we are looking after our bodies. Um, and also in terms of timing sex, uh, we've got no excuse now not to get it perfectly right. So if you do have a predictable cycle and you can optimise the amount of time you have sex around your ovulation, that in itself will help a lot of couples to conceive. Great. So as another question, how often are you, as a fertility specialist, given updates on the changes to treatment? So as a fertility specialist, I do hear first, but I don't hear very much before the general public. Um, our updates and our restrictions are made by the Department of Health and Human Services, and they are tending to announce them publicly uh, within a day or so of when we get a bit of notice. Um, I would just ask all of my patients to keep an eye on our COVID site on our webpage and also on my social media because I promise I will update as things change in real time. So that's the best way to keep abreast. And if you do have an assisted reproductive treatment plan in place that has been put on hold, make sure you just touch base on day one of each period because then as things are happening, we can update in real time. And things are changing all the time. Things are changing constantly, absolutely. Will less invasive fertility treatments be introduced before IVF? So, look, that is a uh, very good question and I can't really give you an answer except that I can say that hospitals and doctors are working together as best we can to make it safe for patients to have elective surgery. Uh, so things like, I, I have quite a lot of patients who are waiting for a laparoscopy, for example, to investigate and treat things like endometriosis. And um, I don't know when we'll be able to plan elective surgeries, but I can tell you that as soon as we can, my personal plan is to plan some extra sessions of operating and to catch up so that there's not a big backlog of patients who are waiting for surgery before they can move forward. In terms of ovulation, induction, cycle augmentation, uh, that can be offered now. Uh, it was thought that that might be restricted uh, based on a preliminary advice from the Department of Health and Human Services, but that was withdrawn. So we can still offer ovulation, induction, cycle augmentation treatments. These do require ultrasound monitoring. So you know, in thinking about whether that's right for you, you have to think about your own risk of uh, exposure and coming into clinics. We certainly, unfortunately, can't treat anyone who has a cold or any symptoms of upper respiratory tract infection or who has been exposed to anyone with such symptoms within the last 14 days, and that's to make sure that everybody is safe. And we do have some really strict measures at our clinic that have changed our usual practice, for example, we're asking all our patients to wait in our car park. We're lucky we've got an on-site, very spacious car park. And we're bringing patients into our clinic one patient at a time and um, or one couple at a time. And that's just to make sure that we're fully complying with all of the social distancing practices that we've been asked to and also to make sure that everybody is as safe as, as possible. And while we do have stringent hygiene measures in place at all times, we're paying even more attention um, to make sure that there's no risk um, or no significant risk of any transmission in our clinic itself. So um, that's something to think about. If you are immune compromised, if you are 
somebody who can wait and that waiting for treatment won't compromise your care, then that's a reasonable thing to do. But if you feel that you would really love to move on with treatment and there is a treatment we can offer you now, uh, we are open and we are seeing patients in person um, where examination and monitoring is required and also via telehealth. So there's definitely a lot you can still be doing now, even if we don't know when treatment will be resumed. Exactly. Okay, so this is a big question that we've seen everywhere. What are the risks of COVID-19 to pregnant women and unborn babies? So the risks of COVID-19 to pregnant women and unborn babies, uh, we're learning more and more about now. Uh, but, you know, obviously this is a situation and a virus that really only emerged last year and we really haven't seen any long-term outcomes uh, for children born of mothers infected with COVID-19 during pregnancy. What we can say is that we know the coronavirus and other associated viruses are unlikely to cause any birth defects. Um, it's true that pregnant women are more vulnerable and they are a more vulnerable group compared to non-pregnant women in general. But happily with this virus, we have seen that the more serious outcomes are happening in general in older people and that younger people are to some degree spared. And it's been really reassuring that pregnant women don't seem to deteriorate when they do catch COVID-19 and they don't seem to become sicker as a group in general than women of the same age who are not pregnant. It's possible that a woman, if she did get really sick with COVID-19 when she was pregnant, you know, that might, for example, lead to premature delivery of her baby in order to stabilise the mum. And we know that that has happened, especially overseas in the UK, to a few women, that their babies have been delivered prematurely for maternal reasons. Uh, the babies have been fine. And um, there was some thought of whether, it, you know, in terms of a newborn contracting COVID-19, whether that came from uh, what we call vertical transmission from mother to child when the child was not yet born. Um, but we think that the baby that caught COVID-19 most likely caught it from the mum after being born and that baby is okay. Thank you. We've just got a question here that's been asked and um, it's got a few parts. Can I change clinics during this time or would I need to do all my testing again? So, look, what I would say is that, you know, just to answer the question, you need a captain of the ship. You need a doctor looking after you. And, you know, the clinic and the doctor are separate in, in general terms. You are always free at any time to change specialists and get a second opinion or get a second opinion without necessarily ultimately changing your specialist care um, and also to move between clinics um, and all the specialists work with a clinic. Um, it makes sense as a doctor to work with one clinic because just logistically it's pretty difficult if you're running between one and another and most doctors have arrangements with clinics that are somewhat monogamous. For example, I treat my patients who need IVF and artificial insemination using Melbourne IVF as my lab. Uh, the reason that I chose to affiliate with Melbourne IVF is it is an absolute kick-ass lab. And as far as lab outcomes go, I'm really proud to say that it has amazing outcomes. 
and as well as that, uh, the group of doctors that work with Melbourne IVF are mostly my friends and we get on really, really well. And it's a very collegial group of doctors. Um, and it's really nice, for example, um, in a context of when you do want to kind of, you know, chew the fat with another doctor in your field about a particularly tricky situation with a patient, um, to have a really collegial relationship. And it also um, is really good when, for example, um, you want to go away for a few days because while, um, you know, we all work really hard, we can't work seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it's always nice to have a bit of backup. So um, that's why I choose to be with Melbourne IVF. But, you know, definitely any patient can change clinics and during this time is no different. Are new sperm donors being released onto the list during this time or is this something on hold as well? Okay, so this was a specific question um, from one of my patients I received on Instagram and I had to ask about the answer and what the answer was was that um, the donors that have already donated and are currently being released are still being released. So there's new donors coming onto the register once they've served their three months quarantine at Melbourne IVF. Um, we're not at this time actively seeking and enrolling new donors, um, but we will be as soon as practice restrictions are lifted and we have more staff available. The reason for this, and I'm very sad to say this has affected my practice too, is that during the time where no elective IVF procedures have been allowed to start, um, respecting the Department of Health and Human Services request, uh, Melbourne IVF as an institution can't justify being fully staffed at this time. And they have actually, unfortunately, had to ask a lot of our beautiful nurses, scientists to step down during this time where there's a very low volume of patients being treated. And they will step up again as soon as we can. But because of that reason, um, things like recruiting new sperm donors uh, is also one of those things that's put on hold for the time being. When, uh, now a few people ask this question, when is a menstrual cycle considered irregular? So a menstrual cycle that is regular um, means that it's predictable and within a couple of days it comes within the same monthly cycle. You know, the average would be 28 days, but you can have a regular cycle that's 21 days or you can have a regular cycle that's 35 days. But if it's a different number of days every month, between the first day of your period and the first day of the next period, then that's an irregular cycle. And is there anything you can do if you have an irregular cycle? Absolutely. So the first thing to do is to find out the reason why the cycle is irregular in the first place. And there are so many different reasons. Um, there are lots of different reasons. So the first thing is to have a diagnosis. And to do that, um, you need to come in do a telehealth consultation and have usually an ultrasound and a series of blood tests to figure out the reason. A common reason is polycystic ovarian syndrome, but there are many other reasons as well. Thank you. Okay. How long after my first appointment would fertility treatment or egg freezing start? Okay. So, um, you know, I could probably throw that question back at you, Geordie. So, for example, you've frozen eggs before. How long before your first appointment 
did um, did it take to get to the actual process? Well, it was a few months. So I have, um, there's a few steps you need to take. Now, it was two and a half years ago. But, you know, there's counselling and visiting the nurses and obviously having all the diagnosis done. Um, but... Uh, as one of my tests, you sent me for an ultrasound and they found a dermoid cyst, which was growing on my right ovary and had to be removed. So that actually meant I did have to have elective, elective surgery and then recover from the surgery and then we could start egg freezing. So from when I first saw you till egg freezing, it was about four, four or five months, I think. Yes. So, you know, I would say that's longer than average, but because you had the surgery, but it's very, um, which is fair enough, actually. I mean, it's a pretty big deal going through a laparoscopy. You wouldn't want to jump straight into an egg freezing cycle, the next cycle. But um, it um, would, I would say on average, take one to two months at least before from when I first see a patient to when they're actively in treatment for egg freezing, sometimes longer because occasionally if a patient has a low egg reserve based on AMH, there are different interventions that I like to prepare them with before they start treatment. There are certain um, vitamins, minerals and hormones that can be used to try and get the best outcome from a cycle. So I sometimes like patients to be on those for a few months before we start active treatment. So... Um, I would say there's the process, egg freezing and IVF for that matter are so complicated and I think really it takes a little while to get your head around it and I think the way way for patients to have the best experience going through these processes is to come along and firstly make, you know, an informed decision, you know, assess their own ovarian reserve, think about how many cycles it might take for them to get the kind of egg numbers that we might be aiming for as their goal and and thereby think, well, is this the right pathway for me? And then once they've decided to proceed, just, you know, I think having that education, having that time to consider things, um, maybe to undertake counselling if that's helpful. It's it's not compulsory um, for egg freezing, but sometimes it's helpful. Uh, And then just timing things um, with their life. Because under normal circumstances, women who go through egg freezing still live their life and, and you know, they might be timing it to avoid a time, say, for example, where they might be travelling for work or, or another kind of time in their, in their schedule that it might suit them well. So uh, I think, you know, if you're thinking about egg freezing, if you've thinking, been thinking about it for a long time, uh, it's a good opportunity to find out more. Uh, and in terms of the fact that the treatment start is potentially delayed for a few months I wouldn't I wouldn't be too concerned about that that's not that different to when um, normal circumstances prevail I've got another question that's just come through do you have an, an increased risk of pregnancy complications if you have stage four endometriosis so the short answer to that question is no um, you don't, but it's much harder to get pregnant. So I would say to anybody who thinks they might have endometriosis, um, to think about you know, confirming or denying that diagnosis early in the piece because stage four endo doesn't happen overnight. It takes many years of progressive uh, kind of worsening of the condition. 
And when we intervene on endometriosis at an early stage, we can prevent women getting to the point where they have stage three, stage four disease that really does cause a lot of anatomical problems and a lot of inflammation in the pelvis and it can make it very difficult to get pregnant uh, without surgery and or IVF. It's also a concern sometimes that IVF isn't safe. So, for example, if you have stage four endometriosis and your bowel is stuck behind your uterus in the place that we'd normally put the needle to retrieve eggs from the ovary, then we really can't safely do an IVF egg collection before you have a quite radical surgery. So my advice is that, you know, once you are pregnant, stage four endometriosis doesn't necessarily complicate things further. However, uh, in terms of getting pregnant, firstly, it can cause painful sex. It can cause tubal damage. It can cause adhesions in the pelvis. Um, you can have endometriomas on the ovary, which reduce the ovarian reserve. Um, you can have bowel-related problems as well. And um, very, very important to seek help at the earliest stage possible. Um, especially if you're younger, you know, endometriosis is one of the few Medicare eligible reasons for egg freezing. If you're younger and you're not yet partnered and, um, or you're just not ready to have a baby, but you know, you've got endometriosis, uh, proactive measures may really cause, well, may really prevent a lot of, you know, kind of fertility difficulties in the future, because at least when you're younger, your egg quality is really good and, um, putting some young eggs in the freezer for the future might be a good idea. Okay. Ah, why is there a mandated counselling session in Victoria? Okay, so this is an interesting one. Victoria is one of the first places in the world to have successfully um, created a baby through IVF. The third baby in the whole wide world um, occurred in Victoria through IVF and when IVF really started, a lot of uncertainty existed around the technology and a lot of distrust, especially from our governments and, um, you know, really trying to protect people. But Victoria in general is one of the states that has the most legislation around IVF. And while counselling is recommended in most jurisdictions, it's mandatory in Victoria. Now, I would say this is all under review at the moment. So there was a commission investigating the way that IVF is practised in Victoria last year and changes are happening. So it may not be mandated in the future, but they're the reasons historically that the session is mandated in Victoria. Well, it has already changed. When I froze my eggs, it was mandatory and now it isn't mandatory for egg freezing. Oh, no, I think that was more a clinic practice rather than a change uh, in, the, in the law because egg freezing is a technology that when this law was written really wasn't practised. Yes. It's such a new technology and it also doesn't create embryos. Um, so it, it basically an egg by itself can't make a baby. So freezing an egg from the point of view of the law is no different to, say, having you know blood collected for donation or any other tissue that belongs just to you. Or, sper or freezing sperm for that matter, you know, it's it's not in itself able to make a baby. But once you've combined egg and sperm, um, that's when the mandated counselling has to come into effect. And that's why you need it for um, artificial insemination, um, as well as anything involving embryos. 
Uh, next question. Why do we need to get a referral to see a fertility specialist? Well, actually, you don't technically need a referral. You can make an appointment without a referral. Uh, you need a referral from a GP to see any specialist to access Medicare benefits. So when you have a referral, you get a proportion of your consult fee rebated from Medicare. Um, and if you didn't have a referral, you could still see a specialist. But, uh, and this is what people who don't have Medicare do, uh, but there'll be no rebate towards your care from Medicare. Ah. After a laparoscopic procedure to clean up, clean up endometriosis and whatever else is going on, how long would it take for it to grow back? So say you've had a laparoscopic procedure a few weeks ago and now everything's on hold. How long are you okay for? Uh, that's very variable. It depends on what kind of endometriosis was found and what stage it was at the time. And also in terms of um, whether you're trying to have a baby or whether you're on the pill, because when you're on the pill, it's really protective against endometriosis returning. Uh, when you're trying to have a baby and you're ovulating every month, some women will have really aggressive endometriosis that comes back quite quickly and others will have less aggressive disease that um, takes a longer time to recur or may not recur after surgery. So it's one of those how long is a piece of string answers, unfortunately. Uh, but in terms of studies supporting a benefit, there's certainly been studies supporting a benefit in the three months immediately after laparoscopy for improved natural conception. So after trying naturally to conceive for two years due to unexpected fertility, is it worth trying IVF? So unexplained infertility is when we haven't found a reason for couples not getting pregnant, having done all of the possible investigations to look for known causes. So I would stress that you can't make a diagnosis of unexplained infertility without a woman having a pelvic laparoscopy because a big proportion of what we think of as unexplained infertility is in fact endometriosis and only 50% of cases of endometriosis are seen on ultrasound. Um, Having said that, unexplained infertility doesn't mean there's no reason that you're not getting pregnant. It means whatever the reason is, it hasn't been identified on a test. We do know that 80% of couples who are trying to conceive who don't have a problem get pregnant in six months and 90% get pregnant within 12 months. There's a further 10% of couples who get pregnant in two years. After that, your chance of getting pregnant naturally if you haven't conceived to that point is less than 1% per month. So what the recommendations are is that if you're under 35 and you've been trying for a year uh, or if you're over 35 and you've been trying for six months, those are the times where you should actively seek the help from a fertility specialist because... There's a, a lot of things that can be causing um, concerns that need to be looked into. And unfortunately, there are still about 20% of the couples we see where we don't find an explanation. And of those, 80% will have a baby with IVF. So I would definitely say to um, the person asking that question, it's definitely time to seek help and to seek the opinion 
of a fertility specialist who's an expert in their field. And in terms of, you know, general advice, um, you know, that, that's my general advice. But for every individual couple, it doesn't replace the individualised assessment with your doctor. Definitely. This is general information that we're giving. Ah, could you please explain ovulation induction and its success rates? Is this something we can do while waiting for the stop on fertility treatment? Okay. So ovulation induction really refers to helping a woman to ovulate when she is not otherwise ovulating or not ovulating regularly. It doesn't really have a place as such um, for helping couples who are already having a very regular cycle and knowing exactly when they're ovulating. Um, you can use the same techniques that we use in artificial insemination um, to try and what we, we say induce what's called gentle super ovulation, which is asking a woman to make more than one egg in a month on purpose to increase her chance of getting pregnant. Now, that is something that we can do now, but it needs to be done in the expert hands of a doctor. There has to be an absolute, you know, kind of consideration of what would a twin pregnancy or a triplet pregnancy mean to you. We want to absolutely avoid the risk of what we call high order multiple pregnancies, because when you have triplets or more, babies are always born very premature and it really increases the risk to everyone concerned and we really want to avoid that so you know I would say that if you are considering what gentle interventions might be suitable for you in this time where we can't use assisted reproductive technology my advice is see a doctor make an appointment you're certainly welcome to see me if you're in my area or via telehealth and um, discuss your circumstance in detail uh, to see if, if superovulation in vivo, as we say, is something you could consider. And is this something we can do while we're waiting for the stop on fertility treatment? It is something you can do, but it does require ultrasound monitoring.